Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On February 16, 2018, Yanis Hamalakis, a professor of archaeology and modern Greek studies at Brown University, met with a panel of Siam students and faculty to discuss two of his recent written works. The first was a 2017 article in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal titled Sensorial Assemblages, Affect, Memory, and Temporality in Assemblage Thinking. The discussion of sensoriality, affectivity, and time in this reading color our subsequent discussion of Professor Hamalakis's ongoing research on the archaeology of forced migration on the island of Lesbos, and our other reading, the introduction to the 2016 issue of the Journal of Contemporary Archaeology that he guest edited on the topic of archaeologies of forced and undocumented migration. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Good afternoon and welcome to our new edition of the Siams podcast. I'm Aneta Alexandridis, an Associate Professor of Greek and Roman Art and Archaeology in the Department of History of Art and of Classics. Our guest today is Yanis Kamilaitis, Dukowski Family Professor of Archaeology and Professor of Modern Greek Studies at Brown University. An archaeologist of Aegean prehistory, he actually defies any such traditional labeling. His work is always uh, a critical inquiry into the hegemonic apparatuses of archaeological knowledge production. For example, in his work on archaeological nationalism, on indigenous archaeologies, archaeology and ethnography, and more recently on the sensorial, effective, and this way politically productive relationship between past and present. Among his publications, I would like to mention The Nation and Its Ruins, Archaeology, Antiquity, and National Imagination in Modern Greece from 2007, and Archaeology and the Senses, Human Experience, Memory, and Affect from 2013. He has put all these uh, researches, research projects into practice, among them the Kutulu Marula Archaeology and Archaeological Ethnography Project. Yesterday, Professor Hamilakis gave a talk here at Cornell on the new nomadic age, archaeologies of forced and undocumented migration. And the readings we want to discuss today relate to this talk. These are two articles by Professor Hamilakis. Archaeologies of Forced and Undocumented Migration. That's the introduction to an issue with the same title that uh, Professor Hamilakis guest edited for the Journal of Contemporary Archaeology. And um, another article, Sensorial Assemblages, Affect, Memory, and Temporality in Assemblage Thinking, Cambridge Archaeological Journal 2017. Uh, hi, I'm Miki Carignano. I'm a PhD student in Classics. And uh, my question has to do with your inclusion of conversations with migrants, both in the article we read and in the talk last night. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you don't like to just conduct an ethnographic interview. You don't ask people to tell you their story. And so I was wondering, um, what do you try to talk about and kind of what are your goals in, the, in your conversations and how do you fit them in with the rest of your work? Yeah, um, as I was saying yesterday, I realized early on that um, to conduct that kind of ethnography using the conventional 
methods and practices of uh, ethnography or cultural anthropology is not going to work. And I was explaining yesterday that people are very often tired of talking a lot because they have to do that as part of their asylum application procedures. They have to do that as part of um, narrating their life and story to uh, other people, to NGOs often, to volunteers often. So my approach from the beginning was to be there, to spend enough time with them in the various situations, like a camp, like a, a solidarity structure. And first of all, try to understand the experience and the sensorial impact of that place and its structures to people's lives. So in doing so, um, you start gradually, slowly, slowly developing some sort of rapport with people. Uh, they have, first of all, to uh, be confident themselves that you are there um, as, a, as an ally, not as a person who has some sort of extractive attitude towards them, not as somebody who's trying to make some sort of um, gain or academic or other capital out of their experience. They have to understand that you are there to understand yourself, yourself how you know, the whole thing is developing in their lives, but also to uh, express through practical or other means solidarity to what they are trying to achieve. So through that process, conversation happens naturally. You talk about small things, you talk about daily life, you talk about other uh, things that are happening to them. And then gradually they talk, they open up and they talk to you. They start talking about their current situation. They're very keen to um, uh, talk about especially uh, the frustration they feel about living in camps, especially in that Moria camp I, I, I showed yesterday, but also in other uh, contexts. And they are very keen to express the frustration with the whole regime of deportation, detention on the islands, the fact that they cannot move out of the island, they have to stay there while the whole um, asylum application procedure is being uh, examined. So if that rapport is being established, the conversation happens without you forcing questions. I don't know whether I answer your question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Salpi and I'm a first year master's student in archaeology. You discussed in your talk and also your article how government, the government and also migrants play a role in producing the materiality of borders. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could speak more to the contribution that aid organizations have mm -hmm. to producing Yeah. That's a, that's a big story, and I think it's a very interesting story to examine, and in some cases also a very depressing story to, to talk about and examine. Because I, I had read before, I actually went for the fieldwork, I had read um, various studies who talk about the humanitarian industry. So they use the term industry to describe a whole network of agencies and organizations that are implicated in this whole uh, migration phenomenon. There are, as we know, the big NGOs uh, who, which are present in the situations uh, in many different countries. We used to see them operating, let's say, in Africa, in context in Asia. Now we see them operating in the Mediterranean, in Greece, in Italy, in Spain, on the hotspots of major uh, 
migration, kind of border crossing um, experiences and phenomena. And authors, for example, uh, an anthropologist called Didier Fassen, uh, speaks a lot about that humanitarian phenomenon and the humanitarian industry and the whole kind of ethical dilemma that we face when we encounter this phenomena because on the one hand we are all in favor of their intentions on the other you realize early on that they operate very often as corporations they operate as major organizations that receive large amounts of funding and in some ways they need the phenomena they need migrants they need the migration crisis for them to continue justifying their position um, I was saying to somebody, uh, some people yesterday that in the camps I actually visited, especially in Moria camp, I saw well-intentioned volunteers operating under the umbrella of some of those major organizations, assuming the role of guards, assuming the role of the security apparatus. Inside Moria there were young kids from the US or other countries wearing the uh, vests of major organizations volunteer organizations who went there to help with you know their idealism, their world, you know, men's kind of intentions and scope. And they end up um, guarding various um, gates and doors inside the camp and asking um, asking for the migrants' papers to allow them in and out of the various facilities. Now you could see that I, I you know actually that shocked me when I saw it first because I realized that here we have an assemblage to connect you know, the two articles we're going to discuss, an assemblage that is uh, composed of many different components that co-function. Co the one is the other. The security apparatus, the police, the army, the Ministry for Migration uses in some ways uh, the major organizations to perform their duties. There are not enough guards and policemen and policewomen to guard these people to perform that role of security and civilization. So the NGO who is there to provide humanitarian assistance at the same time doubles as a security organization. So you could see that entanglement of the NGO with the security apparatus. Migrants see that, recognize that. So in some of the revolts that happened at Moria in the last couple of years, Migrants would um, vent their anger not only against the state or against the security apparatus, but also against the major NGOs. They would even burn some of the uh, prefab offices and houses of these NGOs as a frustrating kind of act of anger towards the whole network of operation, not just towards one specific. It wasn't personal, it was you know, the whole situation with its different components co-functioning. So you could see how these things work together. In terms of how they shape the materiality, the island of Lesbos, for example, at the moment is full of um, uh, organizations like those. It's full of people who are there uh, working as part of this whole network. Uh, you can see you can see it in the many cars you'll see on the island with the logos of the various companies, the various NGOs. You could see them in the um, small. Um, Offices they have actually opened in Mytilinian and elsewhere on, on this. You could see them inside the camps with their uniforms, their um, own separate offices, with uh, some of the material they give out to migrants. And that's very interesting also in terms of branding, in terms of kind of spreading the logo. Mm -hmm. um, they, 
very often want to be prominent in 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 the kind of projection of the humanitarian ritual. So especially when there are uh, media around, there are cameras, there are other kind of um, prominent visitors, they make sure that their own logos uh, and brands are there very clearly projected. Hi, I'm Danny Vanderhorst. I'm a first-year master's student in archaeology. Um, and I was wondering if we could talk more about um, the almost the assemblages that these migrants leave behind. Um, mm. You talk specifically in the Archaeologies of Forest and Undocumented Migration article about the problems you run into when um, locals are viewing these essential, essentially what are assemblages as trash, mm. you know, things that are left on the beach, things that are um, abandoned, left behind. Um, you know, and, and we as archaeologists revel in trash, you know, constantly. It's like the best thing to find is the trash pit on site. Garbologists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm wondering if um, you could talk more about the difficulties in trying to find a balance of kind of keeping these assemblages, what people see as trash, emotional, because these are very emotionally charged mm. assemblages of objects, particularly because they are still connected to people's lives today. Mm. Um, and kind of the balance of trying to both be sensitive to environmental concerns, but mm. also being sensitive to the emotional human concerns mm. related here as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not easy. It's not something that is unproblematic. It's not something that you can resolve very, very easily and, and fast. Uh, what I would say is that, in that case, the archaeologist of the contemporary, the archaeologist who works on contemporary migration, needs to to do uh, recording and possibly collection of some artifacts very, very fast, and then, of course, allow these artifacts to be removed, let's say, from the beach, because the local community would want that beach to be, you know, uh, clean, uh, especially if that community relies on tourism for their income. So you understand their local concern. So at that level, at the level of, you know, uh, cleaning up, I think, yes, it has to be done, and it often happens, as I said, I think, yesterday, by the volunteers themselves who help the migrants actually get them you know, get to the to um, on the island and get them processed to you know the station center. So it's not that what they do is wrong. I think it has to happen. What I think it's problematic when the whole kind of uh, phenomenon is presented as pollution. So if we say, oh look at all these things that are destroying our beaches, if it becomes uh, a rhetorical scheme within a xenophobic discourse about the impact of migration on the island. So that's when things become problematic. So I would say that if there are archaeologists or others who work as both activists and, and archaeologists in the conventional sense, they could in fact um, record some of it, uh, for example through photography, um, or through various techniques we use in archaeology to locate the um, that specific kind of material um, on the ground um, to I don't know, GPS or other recording, and then allow for the cleaning to happen. And then, of course, you have to decide what do we do with the actual material traces, and that's where your emotional kind of question about the emotionality of it um, counts. I think uh, photography itself can, depending on how you do it, can become a very 
interesting, emotive, and effective way of communicating phenomenon. So a photog photographic process that actually takes into account the uh, affective impact of these places can actually be conveyed to others who are not present there, can be conveyed to visitors, can be conveyed to uh, audiences and other people elsewhere, as we did uh, last night. But then, selectively, I think that we could also maintain, keep some of these traces, which can then become part of, uh, let's say, an exhibition or a collection can be stored or archived, um, kept somewhere in another institution, and can allow the people who were not there, who are not very familiar with the phenomenon, to come to terms with it in a material sense. A lot of it cannot be kept, of course. You know, there are half a million life vests in Lesbos. Obviously, you cannot keep that as a, um, as a kind of assemblage. But you can do selective collection and then, as I said, careful and um, ethically and sensitively done exhibition to convey uh, the materiality of the phenomenon in other ways. So you have to do both. You have to do both the recording of it and the um, selective collection and, and archiving and storage, as well as the cleaning. And more importantly, you have to battle this phenomenon in the public discourse, in the public media. So whenever the whole phenomenon is being described as an invasion, as a pollution, as an environmental issue exclusively, then you have to intervene as an archaeologist and explain why these things are valuable. In the same way as you said, we valorize the garbage of people of another time. If we do that for the Neolithic or the Bronze Age or the Classical, then why are the garbage or the things left behind by contemporary people necessarily, by definition, polluting and problematic and rubbish? You know, they are only within a framework that sees, uh, sees the kind of the uh, the use of beaches exclusively for tourist purposes or for you know, natural beauty spots as the only kind of thing we should valorize. Okay, um, my name is Elizabeth Proctor and I am a first year MA student in archaeology. Um, and I'd like to sort of bring our discussion back to um, your article on sensorial assemblages and sort of tie this into our discussion about migrants. Um, mm -hmm. And I know in your talk last night and in your article, you discussed how some migrants are now living at archaeological sites. Mm. Um, and I was wondering sort of if you have talked to them at all um, and sort of how you see or how they see their role in sort of the site history, especially um, where you talk, mentioned in your article how sort of time is layers of coexisting past. Mm -hmm. And if uh -huh. they sort of see that for themselves as current residents? That's so interesting and so complicated, but I, I, I like your question a lot because actually, as you say, connects the two pieces of writing and in fact it shows the underlying kind of threads there that I think are both worth exploring. So I've seen migrants um, living, especially in, during the summer months, living in archaeological sites on the island of Lesbos. I haven't actually spoken to them deliberately, so because uh, in that context would have been a very invasive and a very kind of interfering thing for me to do. Uh, they were uh, scorting in a sense. So from the point of view of the heritage authorities and archaeology, they were trespassing. They were 
using an archaeological site for purposes that were not meant to be used. So my presence there could have been a bit problematic for them, difficult. They may have uh, thought I was somebody from the archaeological service or somebody of the, from the municipal kind of authorities trying to you know, throw them out or worse. So I didn't want that to happen. So I observed the phenomenon, but I stopped. Um, how, but I mean, you're right in saying that that actually brings in the whole issue of the appreciation and the connection that they could make, they may have made between the material traces uh, they were occupying and their own perception of time and temporality. For that, for us to understand that, we need to discuss with them, we need to perhaps in another context engage in a discussion about what's happening over there. But I have seen in other contexts the connection you're implying are being made. Uh, one example is the phenomenon of other uh, heritage spaces such as mosques in Greece, you know, material traces, you know, from the Ottoman period. You know. Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire when uh, Greece was multi-faith and multicultural society, and there were Christians and Muslims and others, of course, living um, living uh, in the country. There are still, despite these kind of cleansing attempts, there are still many mosques. Some of them uh, properly restored uh, monuments, many of them uh, reused as concert halls, as kind of museums, as storage spaces for the archaeological service. Many, however, most of them, I would say, lying abandoned. Uh, and I saw, uh, I, I showed you yesterday an example of the Balibedza in Mutilini, uh, the earliest mosque for the town, a very interesting 17th century monument, which is officially declared as a monument, so it's scheduled and registered, but not actually restored and you know, falling apart. So I've um, encountered the media stories of Muslim migrants today in Greece expressing, this is a recent story actually I saw about a case in Rethno in Crete, expressing um, a desire to use some of these places as places for worship for them. Now this is extremely difficult issue, controversial for the heritage discussion in Greece. This is something that will not happen anytime soon, officially. But who knows, maybe there are unofficial processes already underway by some of them to actually use these spaces for their, you know, their worship. In that case, you do see a connection, uh, maybe not in the sense of an archaeological temporal connection so much, but in the sense of kind of connection with the original uh, uh, religious use of that building. I am of the opinion, and I have actually said this to my colleagues in Greece, that some of the mosques uh, existing today in Greece need to reopen, at least for part, you know, for some days in the year, to be used um, for prayer for the Muslim population of Athens and of Greece as a whole. It is a scandal today for Europe and for Greece that there is no official mosque in Athens. And there are many, many thousands of Muslims living in Athens and they have no official place of worship. There's a decision uh, by the government to build a big mosque. Uh, it's not hasn't been built yet. And there's lots of negative reaction pushed back by the church, by other um, extreme nationalist circles for it not to be built. But there are buildings that could have been used. 
And the argument I get often from uh, you know some colleagues is that, but we want to maintain the secular nature of these as archaeological and monument sites. And I would say to them, why is it then that several monasteries, Byzantine date, are both monuments and places of worship? Why do you accept that in the case of Christian monasteries and not in the case of mosques? You, you can actually have both uses, you know, both kinds of uh, attributions uh, at play in a monument. It can be a monument and a place of worship at the same time, for at least part of the year, for certain celebrations. So that's um, that's a longer kind of conversation that needs to happen and needs to enter the public debate in a country like Greece, not only in Greece, but in many other countries. Uh, I'm John Gorchik. I'm an Anthro PhD student. And um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask a question that uh, came up sort of last night in the Q&A session, but I didn't get a chance to follow up on it. Um, so last night after your talk, uh, Laurie Kachadorian asked you a question about uh, viewing the contemporary archaeology of migration, or your thoughts on viewing the contemporary archaeology of migration and what sort of ethno-archaeological insights it might mm. generate for the study of past migration. Mm. And I found your answer to be highly interesting, and, mm. and I, I hope that I, I got it right. You said um, that at first you rejected the idea altogether that this was a sort of ethno-archaeological project, but then after thinking about it a little bit more, you um, believe that maybe it's possible to generate some uh, ethno-archaeological insights, but as long as we are clear that they are the secondary focus of this type of archaeology. Mm. Um, and But my question is, what about the other way around? Mm. What does an archaeological or historical knowledge of past patterns of migration and borders bring to the conversation of contemporary migration? Mm. For example, encountering popular and state narratives about the nature of migrants or migration or borders. Mm. I wonder if you could say more about that. Mm. Yeah, um, just to comment briefly on the first, the first part of the question. Yes, I think you... Um, you're right in saying that it is a big issue, you know, how to what extent we see this as some sort of ethno-archaeological project. And I, as I said last night, I reject that because, first of all, ethno-archaeology in its conventional sense was using the people of the present as proxies for uh, people in the past, you know, trying to use them as kind of some sort of, you know, um, analogs and some sort of people who are frozen in time or their practices frozen in time and that it can be used as, you know, uh, analogical inferences for past material practices. I, I, as I said last night, I, I do believe that there could be knowledge that can be actually useful for archaeologists. But at this moment, and as a primary focus, the people migrants today are at the center of this study on their own right, and we have to understand their experience and faith and kind of their own desires. At this specific moment. Now, in terms of the second part of your question, how about we uh, we use the historical studies on migration or archaeological studies to understand the contemporary phenomenon? I would agree that there is uh, there is a scope there. There is kind of things we can learn, and I'm actually in discussions with some of my colleagues at Brown elsewhere to try and provide some sort of historical depth to the phenomenon and see whether historical studies of migration can help us understand the contemporary moment. So I think there are things then to be learned. I, um, I do not, I haven't done the study myself, but I want to talk to colleagues who have done it. 
Having said that, of course, we have to take into account that there are certain contemporary dimensions that were not so important in the past. The you know the era of nation state is in many ways fundamentally different to many things that were happening before. The whole process of modernity is distinctive in its historical historicity, and we have to take that into account. But still, there are you know this. In both cases, in the past and the present, the experiential dimension, the sense of movement, the sense of you know, locality, uh, the idea of uh, producing space, the idea of you know migration as a, not so much displacement, but emplacement, you know, producing spaces as you move along, as you, you know, create new worlds in different contexts. That's something that unites both the historical and ideological part of migration or the contemporary migration. So in both cases, you have place-making strategies. And I think you're right in saying that because we study places, archaeologists, mm -hmm. and place-making, we can actually gain many insights in understanding contemporary yeah, If I can add something, I mean, it picks up on things that Danny and Lizzie have already said. Um, both in your articles and also yesterday, you, you argued strongly for the uh, creative and, and productive potential of this becoming, the in-between yeah. status, sort of mm. both in a scholarly uh, mm. sense, but also politically. Mm. And um, you in particular pointed, in the article, pointed out how the how this dissolves old dichotomies, for example, in terms of temporality between linear and circular time. So the old trope that the yeah. Progress is the West linear and mm. the colonial mm. other is sort of mm -hmm. stuck and therefore has no history. Mm. And having in mind, in particular, the stories you told and, and of course the right now um, reaction and especially mm. Northern Europe to, to the so-called migration crisis, I wonder how, maybe I'm too much of a misanthrope, but um, um, <laughs> I mean, there is this human desire, I think, to, to come up with a linear, sort of coherent mm -hmm. narrative to make sense of yeah. history. Yeah. And I wonder how we can sort of prohibit that people don't misunderstand the liberation or liberating aspects of becoming as a sort of arbitrariness. Mm. And then kind of reissue um, that dichotomy, um, linear versus circular, as now being versus becoming. So the becoming is the incomplete or incomplete, mm. weaker, mm. Uh, and therefore inferior. Mm. What can we do? Yeah, uh, many issues there. I mean, first of all, the linear versus uh, circular, um, I find that dichotomy problematic itself. Yeah, yeah? of course. It's, it was uh, something that um, anthropologists have kind of discussed in the past, that first modernity works in linearity. Their own case studies from non-Western context were, some of them at least, working the notion of cyclical time. I think mm. I'm not arguing in favor of embracing cyclical time. I'm arguing in favor of embracing multi-temporality, which is different. Uh, it, my own notion is based on the idea that every material moment, every moment of experience that relates to materiality throughout, uh, enacts, can enact potentially um, many different times simultaneously. So the idea that we live only in the present and we live only in one specific moment in time, which is a dot within a line, is problematic, both philosophically and perceptually, mm -hmm. but also experientially. We know ourselves in our own lives that we constantly kind of relate to many different moments from the past, you know, through memory, 
through experience and through materiality too. So uh, what I'm arguing is in favor of embracing that a multiple moments. Of course, we don't always foreground all these moments at the same time. We don't mm-hmm. bring them up constantly all the time. We choose to focus on one because we have to live and uh, experience you know, life in, in a specific way. But potentially, all these moments are there to be reenacted. Uh, and as archaeologists and as people who focus on material things, we have to think more about it and, and, and discuss it more because our you know, materials have that power to enact different moments. And that's why one of the powers of materiality is that it can actually bring up all these different times. So that's my kind of broader um, uh, theoretical philosophical um, framework in relation to time, multi-temporality, not cyclicality. Now, uh, to connect that to your other point about being and becoming and how do we valorize being as something coherent and something uh, accomplished and complete in many ways, so becoming is very messy in many ways. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I think we, we have to, to get over that notion that becoming is messy, becoming is problematic, because becoming is uh, happening to us all the time, but we do want to... Uh, we do want to forget that sense of becoming and emphasize completeness. And if you think about it, completeness and closure is another modernist mythology that we are all coherent individuals. We are not, right? (laughs) I mean, think about yourselves, and I can tell about my own life. I'm not a complete person. (laughs) I'm not in the sense that, you know, becoming something I see in my own life uh, I'm a different person now than I used to be two years ago. Why? Because I've gone through other experiences in the past two years. I've moved from one continent to another, one country to another. I'm in a different institution. I have a new network and set of people I interact with daily. That changes me all the time. So I am constantly in the process of becoming, as I hope you realize that all of us are. Yeah, no. So it's it's a matter of either believing that mythology of modernity, of completeness, and of closure, and you are forming yourself as a personality up to your age, I don't know, 18, 20. And once you become an adult and you have your life, then you're a complete being, and then you can live your life. I think that is something we are accustomed to, to believe. I don't think that is the case. And in the case of uh, migrants in particular, that sense of constantly, you know, being in the process of becoming and kind of creating and, you know, developing a different personality is more pronounced and more prominent because they um, they have taken a very serious decision, a life-threatening decision to actually cross borders and boundaries, get on a boat from, from Morocco, Tunisia, to cross in to uh, and to Italy, that's you know how many of us can do that now? How many of us have the courage to do that now, knowing that uh, uh, good chances may not make it? And yet you're on a boat and you uh, you sing, you laugh, you make jokes with your your fellow uh, passengers because you are you know you're in a, you are into something. You are in a process of, you know, um, being somebody else, and you want to chase something else. You want to leave something behind. You're a haraga in their own mythology. Mm-hmm. You're someone who's who's burned the past life, and is starting a new one. So that's a very clear and a very kind of explicit declaration of, I am becoming somebody else now. 
So I think the difference between them and us in that sense, you know, beyond the fact that we live in a much more comfortable and secure world, is that they are quite explicit about the process. Uh, which is happening to them, and they are willing to take many more risks than we are willing to take. So I think um, it is difficult for people to valorize it and to accept it, but I think it's more honest for all of us to do so. Can I, can I follow up? Yeah. I, mean, I totally agree. I just, I'm always so struck. Because, yeah. I mean, my particular example is always Germany, of course, and it's, it's um, really stunning how... Um, more and more um, the, the discourse is on we want to be German. We don't want to become, we don't want to lose our Germanness. And, I mean, nobody knows what that means, but yeah. that, that sort of, yeah. that's the reaction to it. Yeah. And how can we convey that there's actually a freedom in this kind of, not, not being stuck to some sort of coherence. Exactly, you know? exactly. You, you bring up these examples of some exhibitions where, or the example that you would have to, anyway, return the uh, instruments of surveillance to the surveyor or the cameras, mm. etc. So are there ways to sort of destabilize in a maybe more aggressive way mm. this kind of mm. attitude? You know? That's why, I mean, last night I talked about uh, this being not a migration crisis, but a reception crisis that actually mm. may, may, may hide or may reveal in some way a deeper identity crisis mm -hmm. for the West as a whole. And I think we are reaching a point in many Western societies where we are actually uh, facing huge crises. You know, the mythologies of modernity do not, no, no longer work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the sense that we are moving to, you know, gradually into a better and better world, to the more progressive life that our, you know, our children will live better than our parents, doesn't hold anymore. It's not happening, at least it's not happening for large sectors of population, even in the Western developed worlds. So that sense of progression, for example, mm -hmm. that sense of constant advancement towards something better, you cannot believe that anymore. You have that, and you have, of course, all these phenomena of people from the global south wanting to come and the global north. Uh, you have the various kind of globalized networks of information and media. So at the same time, you have... Um, as resurfacing of nationalist tensions and nationalist beliefs. So that creates a huge crisis in people's understanding of themselves. And part of that crisis, uh, or part of a response to the crisis, is to be extremely defensive mm -hmm. and believe that you can actually fence yourself in to build walls in this country of Europe, to allow you, the European Union to use uh, you know, the budget of the European Union uh, to fence the whole continent off, to create fences in Greece and Turkey or in Spain and maybe in Morocco. Morocco. So to respond to that existential crisis by uh, walling yourself in, by creating more walls and fences, as opposed to confronting, you know, confronting the issues and say why we're facing this serious crisis here. So yeah. I think that's why I think migration as an issue is also important because it forces you to reconsider many of the things you you thought were you know all resolved. Um, I guess I have a question that's somewhat related maybe on the other side of the coin. Uh, if you have thoughts on how the kind of the migrants assemblage changes as they progress through, you talk here a lot about this 
the tension center on the border, but for those who are allowed in, say. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm thinking especially if you talk about the attempt to keep connections with the with you know your home country, say through yeah. the food you cook mm. or things like that. Mm. And do you think that uh, there are changes in, in those sort of mm. efforts as kind of people progress through to different living situations? Yeah, I think there are, and we don't know yet how this current wave of migrants, let's say from you know uh, the Middle East or from Africa, uh, would you know produce new worlds in Europe or in the U.S. But we have historical connections here to make, and that comes back to John's question earlier about how what we can learn from uh, earlier waves of migration, early historical cases. There are some interesting studies already, let's say, on migration in this country. And they're actually very, very good, both ethnographies and other studies of showing how you know migrants who came to this country, let's say, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century or earlier, have developed as communities. Uh, there are people, like you know, my colleague Costis Corellis, who is a good architect and studies various migrant communities in Philadelphia and elsewhere. They have studied how some Greek American migrants mm -hmm. developed in the, uh, uh, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century onwards. They showed how certain communities, originally, first of all, um, were seen as, for example, black. Very interesting. Were seen by the U.S. authorities as somebody who, you know, cannot qualify to be, you know, white uh, Europeans, Anglo-Saxon, whatever. But they gradually became white. They gradually became more affluent, many of them. They gradually moved out of the inner cities in this, into the suburbia. They followed the white flight of uh, you know, middle-class uh, white Americans. And their neighborhoods were now occupied by more recent waves of migrants who are at an early stage of trying to make a life and establish kind of presence in this country. So that movement is very instructive and very interesting for us to examine. I think similar cases in other with other communities uh, in other parts of the world can actually show us, show us a lot. We don't know how the current uh, wave, as I said, is going to um, develop. I suspect that it depends on the context, depends on the situation. The migrants who, for example, settled in Germany in the last couple of years uh, from Syria may develop a very different community, a very different uh, world from the migrants who are going to try and get clandestinely to Britain or to the US or to Sweden. Um, it's a very diverse phenomenon for sure, and you can actually see the diversity even on the border. You can actually see how families from Syria, uh, for a good reason of course, receive preferential treatment by the authorities. You could see how single men from Pakistan or from Eritrea or from Algeria receive a much harsher treatment by the authorities. You see that um, some people, as I said last night, have the money, have saved some money or the families have some money for them to get flight tickets, flight ticket from uh, Casablanca to Istanbul and then travel down and then cross. And you know that others have no money, so they have to... Um, go to the Moroccan or Tunisian coast and wait for a boat to cross into Italy. So even within the broader migration phenomenon, there is huge diversity that needs to be uh, explored and studied. So that kind of phenomenon would become, again, a diverse uh, material and uh, experiential 
phenomenon in the new countries where they're going to settle. Many of them may actually not settle, but try and move around a lot all the time. Several of them try to cross, uh, and they fail, and they cross, try to cross again. Many of them who are reported, deported try again several times. So um, I would say, compared to the phenomenon of the early 20th century migration, this current phenomenon is more diverse, uh, and in many ways more difficult. For them, I mean, it, it was it wasn't easy, of course, for the early migrants into the U.S. in the 19th century. But uh, today, I suspect that for many of them, have more difficulty. It was going to be more difficult to do so. Yeah. Um, you have already talked about the profound effect that photographs and materials can have, and how they've been harnessed and can be harnessed for xenophobic yeah. discourse. Yeah. Uh, another danger you mentioned in your article was uh, these materials and photographs becoming what you called refugee porn. Mm -hmm. How can we prevent valorization of these mm -hmm. materials from crossing that line? Mm. Yeah, I mean, especially photography, and uh, not only because I do have an interest in the study of photography as, it's a, as, a, as a specific way of rendering the world, but also because we see, you know, photographs such a fundamental process of communicating the phenomenon to the wider world. I mean, you, when you think of the Syrian exodus, you immediately think of photos you've seen, right? Think of that uh, photo of the, uh, the dead body of the boy uh, on a Turkish coast that became iconic of a certain phenomenon. So it's through photography we actually uh, remember and recall moments in time very often. I have seen, for example, photos in the media on Lesbos, local media, being completely uh, doctored and faked to convey a certain xenophobic attitude. To give you an example, um, a few, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, there was a demonstration of some uh, African migrants on Lesbos on the port of uh, Middle East. You know, their attempt actually. Um, stress to the authorities that they need to, to travel to the mainland Greece. They cannot just be held on the island as, as, as um, captives. A local uh, station, local web page, local blog, whatever it was, um, reported on that demonstration, but they used the photo uh, from a riots uh, event that happened in South Africa several years ago. It showed uh, African men holding various um, digging instruments and also some axes. And the title was that here we have African migrants from Italy holding axes and other things. So it was an attempt to project the image of a threatening male uh, black person who is going to... An example of how photography is fundamental in that process of creating various stereotypes and disseminating xenophobia. Um, it can also operate, as as you said, and as I kind of other people have said, as um, a different kind of ruin porn. I call it refugee porn in this case because it's often uh, of photographs of remnants left on beaches or in the desert. In the case of this country. And these become very often the um, photos that characterize the phenomenon as a whole. How do we 
to cope with that, how to avoid the danger? Well, there are many different ways. It's not easy, but there are many different ways. You want to uh, attract attention to the issue, but you have to be very careful in the kind of photographic production you create yourself as an archaeologist and the kind of photographic production you disseminate. So I had a, I talked to you uh, yesterday about photographing persons, for example. I think a photo of a person can be a humanizing photo or can be a completely voyeuristic and exploitative photo. Um, as I said, my own um, solution in relation to this in terms of photographing people, migrants, is to judge on the context and understand whether at that specific moment a migrant or a group of migrants wants me to photograph them for a specific purpose, whether they, they want me to disseminate, let's say, a protest, as was the case of uh, men who stood up when they saw me with the camera on Morgan, the one I showed yesterday. Mm -hmm. So that's why I mentioned yesterday that um, uh, theoretical work by my colleague at Brown, Ariela Zulai, theoretician of photography, who talks about the civil contract of photography, that when you have a photographic moment happening, you have to understand what kind of contract, unwritten contract, what kind of implicit contract is being negotiated. And you have to judge whether people do want you to uh, photograph them for a specific purpose. So that's my solution vis-a-vis -vis the photo of persons. Otherwise, I would not photograph the migrant. Um, in many ways, they don't want us to photograph them. It's not a situation very often they want themselves to be remembered by. It's a situation they want others to know that they exist. These are people who very often lived a very respectable life in their own countries. And they temporarily find themselves in camps and other situations. It's not a moment of their journey that they want to be memorialized by in photography. Objects is another matter. Some objects, of course, need to be photographed, first of all, for our documentary purposes. In terms of how that, that photo then becomes disseminated and, 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 uh, and used in other media is something we need to think about more carefully. I, uh, I decided for now that I will photograph some of these traces on beaches because I want to document them. But when I publish, I want to publish them alongside, if I am to publish this, alongside other photos. For example, photos to show the apparatus of security, because these need to be photographed as well. Very often, the authorities do not want you to photograph you know, some of these uh, you know, apparatus of security. And I want to, to project also positive photo photographs of migrant situations, whether it's works of art that you've done, whether it's um, them you know, participating in a kind of ritual that is very positive for them as kind of active agents, um, or in other situations, whether it's a new world of creatives, you know, uh, having been a community established in one specific, you know, uh, locality or destination. So that's why the positive dimension of migration, the fact that it actually has reshaped our cities in the West in a very positive and a very interesting way, needs also to become part of that archive of migration. And often it's not. We, um, we have the tendency to photograph only the negative aspects of it in terms of, you know, the tragic dimension of what you're crossing, but there are lots of positive images that need to come out. Could I usurp yeah. the line of succession here and just yeah. get a comment? Not, yeah. not so much a question, yeah. but a comment. Yeah. Um, 
but it sort of gets to uh, the responsibilities of yeah. archaeologists who bring a specific um, set of tools to the study of migration. And um, I just wanted to make a comment that one of the many things that I've learned from having a partner who's an anthropologist who works in migrant detention mm -hmm. is that uh, forces that we might label anti-migration, whether they're state actors or mm -hmm. private prison industries, are really good at co-opting strategies and language that are that were originally invented by humanitarian organizations, mm. NGOs, to mm. help migrants to learn how to better detain them or to uh, exclude them further. Mm. And so it's just one thing to think about is we have this this toolkit that we bring to the um, <clears throat> you know to the table, including photography, including mm. you know different types of material studies, excavations, mm. and you know it's we have to be constantly vigilant about the ways that uh, about the unseen ways that. Um, these uh, anti-migrant actors might actually co-opt our mm. our toolkit, basically. Um, give us an example. So we can oh, I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but oftentimes um, language is a big thing in yeah. terms of uh, like framing the debate on migration. And a lot of times um, NGOs or humanitarian uh, organizations will change the language that's being used to make it seem uh, or to make migrants seem more human or uh, more sympathetic, and then um, a state agency, a state actor, or a private prison industry will then co-opt that language to make it seem like no, these aren't migrants, or these aren't uh, migrants; they're residents or something like this. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And language is a huge issue. Um, the language that, for example, authorities in Moria use to describe migrants is um, people of concern. <laughs> Which I found very um, funny in some ways, very kind of uh, you know euphemistically very interesting in other ways. How it becomes um, you know somebody else who actually you know sanitizes that whole experience. Uh, in terms of language, the other of course major issue we didn't discuss last night that's worth discussing is the the binarism between a migrant and a refugee. Uh, it's a, I discussed a little bit on the article but, but the vision because it, it is a hot topic in the debate in many countries in Mediterranean at the moment. The idea that we do want refugees in the sense that we do want somebody who is fleeing, let's say, war or persecution. We do not want migrants because migrants are coming here to steal our jobs, basically. And I found that problematic for us as scholars, you know, to use these terms because uh, how you know? How do you draw the boundaries? You know how you know if somebody is not fleeing war, but is fleeing the structure of violence or extreme poverty in a country, is that person not in a similar kind of position to somebody who's fleeing war? And um, so I would use that's why I'm using the term migrant for everybody, basically. On the other hand. Uh, and that's how you have to be constantly uh, aware of the specificity of these terms in specific context. People, many migrants I have met in the camps would rather call themselves, all of them, refugees. And because they know that that is the term that will recognize, you know, guarantee them, or at least help them get the asylum um, you know, uh, status. Yeah. So they say, I'm a refugee too. Uh, I'm fleeing this specific situation in this country. So for them, strategically, tactically, it's important to use that label. 
In terms of our discourse and the scholarly debate, I would prefer to use it in Michael for everybody. And if I can just jump in on that, I think, too, one of the things that's happened in recent years, especially with the term refugee, yeah. um, if you think back to the Olympic Games in Rio, it was a whole movement where there was a, a team represented for yes, refugees right. specifically. Yeah. So I feel like in recent times, this term has, has become, I don't want to say narrowed, but there's a sense where you have a specific group work um, acting on a global stage in which they had met certain criteria, essentially, mm. to be applicable, you know, for, for membership mm. in that group. Mm. So I think there's other uh, contentious uh, issues. Yeah, yeah, it's not an easy itself. one. I would agree. It's not an easy one. I have also to take into account the historicity of the terms, but in terms of the declaration of UN, for example, of the rights of refugees, it actually comes from a specific moment in our history, in the 10th century. It comes from the Second World War, it comes from, you know, various, um, you know, from um, the Holocaust and the Jewish refugees. Um, it's, today is a different world, today is a different phenomenon. So I think we have to understand the present moment and the complexity of the present moment that a huge, as I said, you know, uh, flow of migrants from I hate to use the word flow because it has a lot of aquatic metaphors I don't like, but the movement of migrants from the global south to the global north, which is much more complex than it used to be in the Second World War and after the Second World War. But I do take your point that the term refugee uh, has other sort of connotations today. Uh, it can become a positive term for many people. That's why I said that many people want to use it, uh, especially when they apply uh, for for a status. And then the other issue is how, how can we describe somebody who flees climatic change? Are they not climate refugees? You know, and think of that in terms of biology and uh, biogeography. In a sense, they are looking for a refuge or a refugium, if you want to use the biological term. They are looking for a place that would not be affected by climate change. So, it's it, terminology is a minefield, as we know. Uh, the only thing we we, we can do is to uh, think through these terms, examine them as much as possible, and also examine and and uh, actually talk about the specificity of that context. You know, what extent that term is the appropriate term for this specific. Okay, then I think uh, remains only for me to thank mm -hmm. Professor Kamilakis for his super interesting talk and even more interesting discussion. Um, thank you to all the participants and um, until next time. Thank yes. you. I enjoyed thank it. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. If you enjoyed this episode, we also recommend you listen to the episode earlier this year with Professor Jason de Leon. Professor Hamalakis's research on the materiality of the migration crisis in the Mediterranean makes for a fascinating comparison with that of Professor de Leon, who received the MacArthur Genius Grant in recognition of his multidisciplinary research on the migrant trail across the southern border of the United States. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can find all AAA-sponsored podcasts 
at www.americananthro.org. Don't miss the AAA annual meeting this year in San Jose, California, November 14th through the 18th. Visit AmericanAnthro.org meetings for more information. Thanks for listening.